recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogany or on Talk Show. Last week, I broadcast my programs from the home of Mark and Sharon Williams in Shreveport, Louisiana. I had a wonderful time there. During the week, I visited Gerald Mosley, and that was a wonderful and productive visit, and I had an excellent time, and Fulton Jones. This week, I'm in Saline, Louisiana with Don and Diane Brown. Today, I got to talk to a Baptist preacher in downtown Saline and convinced him through biblical proof that the Ethiopian eunuch was not an Ethiopian. And when I told him why, he knew that I was right, and his face sort of lit up. And I don't know if he'll ever talk about it again. <laughs> but but he had to admit that I was right, and um, it, it was enjoyable, so that was fun. Maybe this weekend I'll get to talk to more Louisiana Baptist preachers. <laughs> that was funny. Okay, tonight it's the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 4. Last week, I gave here an opinion on the genealogies of the Christ, and I expressed the belief that the genealogy recorded in Matthew was the descent according to the succession of the throne of David, while the genealogy recorded in Luke was the natural genetic succession down to Joseph, of course that there were at least two redemptive marriages in addition to the story of Ruth and Boaz, which we all know from the Old Testament, which are not evident in the incomplete records which we have in our scriptures. Until firm scriptural evidence is produced, which may convince me otherwise, I shall stand by that opinion since it's the only explanation that I can imagine that actually follows and believes the scripture as it is written. Before beginning with Luke chapter 4 this evening, I want to illustrate something which further highlights and substantiates my opinions, not only concerning the genealogies, but also concerning the life of Mary, the mother of Christ, and the children which she had after the birth of Yahshua, whom Luke calls her firstborn, Luke 2.7. I have asserted that James, Joseph, and Jude, sometimes called the brethren of the Lord in several places in Scripture, were the children of Mary by a later husband, by a man other than Joseph. I have caught some criticism for that assertion, but I still insist that this is correct. James, the brother of Christ, is called the son of Alphaeus in three Gospels, in Matthew 10.3, in Mark 2.14 and 3.18, and in Luke 
here is another proof of that. If Joseph dies, Joseph, the first husband of Mary, if he dies without any issue, without any natural sons, then Christ becomes the legal and lawful heir of the throne of David. And even though his conception occurred before Joseph's death, Yahweh himself raises up seed for Joseph in the person of the Christ. If, however, the other sons of Mary are the actual physical children of Joseph, then the right to the throne is contested because Joseph has his own natural sons. Therefore, it is apparent that Alphaeus is another man by whom Mary had children later in life, and there is no blame, no challenge, and no accusation anywhere which may be made. The final words of Luke chapter 3, which we did not discuss at length when that chapter was discussed here last week, tell us that Adam was the son of God. From Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. If Adam was the son of God, and if Seth was the image and the likeness of Adam, it is therefore evident that all of those born in that same manner and who have descended from Adam are all sons of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read in part where it is addressing the children of Israel, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul make the point that the Ionians of Athens are also the children of God, where he tells them in verse 28, even as some of the poets have said concerning you, for we are also his offspring. That fully agrees with Genesis chapter 10 and the relation of the Ionians of Athens to the Hebrews. Christ, too, was the son of God, and he was the son of God. Yet he also called himself the son of man because in addition to being a man descended from God, he was also God born of man. Now to commence with Luke chapter 4. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Yahshua returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tested for 40 days by the false accuser, or the devil, as the King James Version translates it. And he did not eat anything in those days, and upon their completion he hungered. The false accuser, or the devil, the Codex Bizai has Satan here. These first two verses are a summary of Yahshua's trial in the desert. The verses which follow, verses 3 through 8, actually describe things which happened during that trial, not when they were completed. 
it's like telling a story and saying that I was in the hospital for a month and the doctors operated on me. Well, the doctors didn't operate on me after a month in the hospital. Obviously, in the context, they operated on me during the month in the hospital. So here we have it. These things which Luke is about to describe happened during the trial of Christ in the desert and not at the end of the 40 days. Some of my interpretations of the scripture, interpretations, I'm sorry, of the scriptures have been criticized by dualists. We actually have dualists in Christian identity. There seem to be a lot of dualists in Christian identity. A dualist is one who believes, basically, that Yahweh God is in heaven and has influence over his people, while a spiritual and supernaturally powerful Satan is in heaven and has influence over his own people. The dualists may criticize me also for that simplified explanation. However, that is basically what they believe. The dualists rationalize their position in several ways. One of those ways is by claiming that Satan is only in the second heaven. There is no scripture to support such a contention. The Revelation in chapter 12 tells us, and I quote from verse 7, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his messengers fighting with the dragon, and the dragon fought and his messengers, and they did not prevail, and this is the key line here, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, who is called the false accuser and the adversary, or in the King James, who is called the devil and Satan. He who deceives the whole inhabited earth had been cast into the earth, and his angels or his messengers had been cast down with him. Now, if Satan is in any heaven, the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven, whatever, then the revelation is lying. Rather, I believe that the dualists had better reexamine their scriptures because they are denying the scripture, and they are spouting Catholic nonsense. Satan, as we are told, is here on the earth, and not at all in heaven. Furthermore, this event in the Revelation had to happen in the remote past, since Satan is correlated. Satan is equivalent to that old serpent. And that must have been the serpent in the garden of Genesis chapter 3. Jude tells us in his epistle that the angels who sinned left their first estate and are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. Peter tells us in his epistle that the messengers who had done wrong or the angels that sinned were cast into a pit of darkness being kept for judgment. 
Therefore, none of them could possibly be in heaven. However, both Jude and Peter explain in their epistles that those who are infiltrating and corrupting Christendom are related to these same original beings who rebelled against God. There are also many other scriptural witnesses to this fact. Therefore, while every rebellion does indeed have an initiator, a leader, an original plotter, however you want to see it, Satan is not merely a personal single entity. Rather, Satan is collectively all of those descendants of the original rebels, which also includes the descendants of Cain, the Rephaim, Canaan, Esau, and all the rest of our own Adamic race who have raced mixed with them and who do so now. Today, they are represented primarily by Jews and Arabs, but it is apparent since the angels who sinned also mixed their seed with every kind, as the Enoch literature attests, that Jude's chains of darkness and Peter's pit of darkness may well be allegories for those dark races of the earth whose existence Yahweh our God did not take credit for in his creation account, which he passed down to us in Genesis. As the Apostle John illustrates in the fourth chapter of his epistles, one is either born of God or one is born of the world. Therefore, if one is not wholly an Adamic being, if his seed is not in him, as John said, of the Adamic race which is born of heaven, and only the Adamic race is born of heaven, if one is not a holy Adamic being, one could not have come from God. John divides the world into two groups, those born of God, those born from above. Only the Adamic race can claim to be described by those words. If you're not one of those Adamic people, then you're born from the sins of the world. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an entire race of Satans, of serpents. One serpent seduced Eve. That's the Genesis 3 story. The seed of the serpent goes beyond the children of Cain. It must include the entire tree. Your seed includes your brethren. It includes those who are related to you. From a translation of the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Michael Wise, Martin A. Bake Jr., and Edward Cook, on page 247, a translation of the scroll known as 1Q23, fragments 1 and 6, which are unfortunately highly fragmented. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird, for miscegenation. And in the same source, from 4Q531, 
fragment two, they defiled. They begot giants and monsters, Zulus and pygmies, perhaps. They begot, and behold, all the earth was corrupted with its blood and by the hand of the giants, which did not suffice for them. And they were seeking to devour many. The monsters attacked it. The scroll is highly fragmentary. The text is quite ambiguous in places, but the story can be followed. Again, 42532, column 2, fragments 1 through 6. Flesh, all monsters will be, they would arise, lacking in true knowledge. That tells us that these monsters would be people. It's not describing donkeys and cows. The monsters, they would arise, lacking in true knowledge. Because the earth grew corrupt, mighty, they were considering from the angels upon, and there's many ellipses here, in the end it will perish and die. They cause great corruption in the earth. While they are quite fragmentary, the general theme of these fragments from what is known as the Book of Giants is readily evident. A very similar version of what is related here is found in 1 Enoch, for instance, in chapters 86 and 88. And it is highly probable that accounts such as these were the inspiration for the ancient chimera myths of both Greek and Near Eastern mythology, the offspring which resulted from the unions of diverse species are later called bastards. For instance, in the Dead Sea Scroll labeled as 4Q204, which is reckoned among the Enoch literature, and their extermination is forecast where it says, exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers, which seems to have been speaking prophetically and is speaking of the offspring of the so-called fallen angels. In the end, there are sheep, and everyone else is a goat destined for the lake of fire, where are hell and death and the false prophet. Imagine for a moment that the dualists are correct, and that there really is a Satan in heaven, as they claim. It would therefore be imagined that there is a Satan in heaven and a God in heaven. And if we believe the racial message of the Bible, then we also see a satanic race on earth and a godly race on earth. Now, if this is true, if we follow the prayer which Yahshua Christ our God told us to pray, we would pray that things be on earth as they are in heaven. And in reality, we are only praying to maintain the status quo. This leads to many ridiculous assumptions. In truth, there is no Satan in heaven, but as the Revelation tells us, Satan has indeed been cast out to earth from heaven. His place was found in heaven no longer. Therefore, we pray that the parable of the wheat and the tares be fulfilled so that things can be on earth as they are in heaven because there's no Satan in heaven and we don't want him here either so that heaven can indeed be restored to earth because 
the promise of Scripture is that the kingdom of God comes here. The tares are going to be raptured. Luke chapter 4, verse 3. So the false accuser said to him, If you are a son of Yahweh, speak to this stone that it would become bread. And Yahshua replied to him, It is written that not by bread alone shall man live. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, which reflects back to the 40 years which the children of Israel spent wandering the desert after the Exodus. So we see a, a quaint poetic reference here to Yahshua's 40 days in the desert. And in Exodus chapter 8, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Yahweh states, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way, all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee known that man, make thee know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh does man live. Verse 5, and bringing him up, he showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. This contention over the meaning of the word stigma here, it's a spot, a point, metaphorically a jot or a tittle, in a moment, Liddell and Scott define it in that manner. The word stigma chronu, the phrase meaning in a moment, as it appears in the New Testament. It appears only here in the New Testament, but it's also in Isaiah 29.5 in the Septuagint, where Brenton translates the word a moment. Some people say that the phrase should be read here in Luke at that point in time, and this reading is a possibility, though I don't deem it likely, because stigma, the Greek word, would hardly be necessary to say that. Luke uses the word chronos with a pronoun in Acts 1, chapter, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, to say at this time. And more often, he uses the word kairos with the pronoun to say at this time. There are many examples of that in Luke's writing. There's many differences amongst manuscripts here. The best writing of the Greek from the best manuscripts. All the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. In other words, he showed them all of the kingdoms of the Adamic Oikumene from the vantage point he was at. And the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text upon which the King James Version is based begin verse 5, 
Then the false accuser bringing him up to a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the inhabited earth. Now, that does agree with the text of Matthew. In Luke, the idea of a high mountain is not expressed. That doesn't mean that it's not inferred. Satan didn't pick up Christ and bring him up into space. He brought him up to a high mountain as the Gospel of Matthew attests in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the false accuser takes him to an exceedingly high mountain, which there were many of in the land of Judah, and shows to him all the kingdoms of the society and their splendor. Verse 6, then the false accuser said to him, I will give to you the authority over all this and their honor, because to me it was delivered, and to whomever I wish I could give it. This word delivered is from a form of the verb paradidomi, which means to give or hand over to another, to deliver up, to surrender, among other things. Here it is evident that the adversary, called elsewhere by Christ, the prince of this world, for instance, in John 12:31, the adversary, the false accuser, the devil, is in control of the kingdoms of this world. This world is ruled over by the enemies of Yahweh our God. When Adam accepted Eve in her sin, he also accepted Cain as his son, just as Joseph was told by the angel to accept the pregnant Mary, and therefore Christ became his lawful heir, so it was also with Adam and with Cain. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, at 1 John 5.19, that we know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Paul wrote of the God of this world, at 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and he was talking about this same thing. Christ stated it, John 12, 31, now judgment is of this society, or world in the King James Version, now the ruler of this society shall be cast out. And that did happen when the people of God in Europe accepted Christianity, and the Jews were excluded from European society for a thousand years or better. Of course, Christ was speaking prophetically because at John 14.30, he says, No longer shall I discuss many things with you, for the ruler of society comes, and he does not have anything in me, meaning that he has nothing to do with me or with Christ. And at John 16, 11, he says, Then, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this society has been judged, it is telling that in ancient Egypt, as well as in ancient Assyria and elsewhere, and this can be shown from many ancient inscriptions, that the serpent was the symbol of rulership, of sovereignty, on the thrones of Egypt and Assyria. The definition of the Greek word used here, paradinomi, 
to me it was delivered, allows the implication that the adversary had been allowed to usurp authority originally given to Adam, which we see in Genesis 1.28, and even in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1-7, through 7, which shall be recovered by the children of Adam through Christ. Promises which we see in Daniel 7.27 and Revelation 11.15. Revelation 11.15 reads, And the seventh messenger, the seventh angel, sounded the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the society of our prince and of his anointed has come, and he shall rule for the eternal ages. We await that now. In the end, in Revelation chapters 19 through 21, we see that the fate of all those who stood against Christ and who are in opposition to God is to be cast into the lake of fire. If they were not written in the book of life, which is the word of God, if they are not Adamic people, go ahead, show me a Negro or anybody of a non-Adamic race who is spoken well of and who is not destined for the lake of fire in Scripture. The other races are not written into the book of life because they are not created by Yahweh our God, or they would be explicitly listed there. They are destined for the lake of fire because they all derived from the world. As the Apostle John tells us, they derived from the world because they were not born of God. The only alternative is they were born in the sin of rebellion against God. They collectively are Satan. Verse 7. Therefore, if you would worship before me, it shall all be yours. And replying, Yahshua said to him, It is written, Yahweh your God you shall worship, and you shall serve him only. The word for worship, the verb proskuneo, may be translated as to make obeisance, and includes the action of prostrating oneself before another, which was an ancient custom. And that's what the word worship infers. Yahshua Yahshua's reply here is apparently a paraphrase referring to Deuteronomy 6.13 or Deuteronomy 10.20, where in each place, both the Septuagint and the King James Version have, you shall fear rather than you shall worship. Deuteronomy 10.20 from the King James Version, thou shalt fear Yahweh thy God, him thou shalt serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. Verse 9. Then he led him to Jerusalem, and stood him upon the wing of the temple, and said to him, If you are a son of Yahweh, throw yourself down from there. For it is written that he commanded his messengers concerning you to guard you closely and that by their hands they shall bear you, lest at any time you may strike your foot against a stone. Notice that the, the false accuser, the devil, 
said to Christ, if you are a son of Yahweh. This is important. I will raise this point later in demonstrating another matter. Psalm 91, from verse 9. Because thou hast made Yahweh, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. The next verse, Psalm 91.13, reveals the nature of the devil here. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. The devil, or the false accuser, insists for Christ to prove that he is the Messiah by testing the oracles of God concerning him. And of course, Christ refuses. Now many people, and especially the dualists, insist that this devil, this false accuser, is that Satan who dwells in heaven. If this devil were some supernatural demon spirit, we must imagine that he would, this test would not be necessary at all, since, as we shall see while proceeding through Luke, all of the demon spirits which Christ did encounter later in his ministry knew with certainty and it attested that he was indeed the Messiah. They professed it. They professed it every time they encountered him. They knew who he was. They knew what power he had. And this devil does not know that. This devil is a person. And replying, Yahshua said to him, for that it says, You shall not tempt Yahweh your God. Deuteronomy 6.16 from the Septuagint. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God as ye tempted him in the temptation. Luke 4.13. And ending the trial entirely, the false accuser withdrew from him until a convenient time. The word kairos is convenient time here. It can be defined as the right point of time, the proper time or season. Nowhere in Scripture can it be said with any certainty that evil demon spirits communicate with men unless they are embodied whether they have been born into these bodies or whether they have come to possess the bodies of certain individuals. And examples of both cases are clear. I'm sorry. Examples of both cases are clear. But it is immaterial unless they are embodied, they do not interact 
with the world. There are many examples of this in Scripture. There are no examples in Scripture of disembodied evil spirits communicating with people in the world. The spirits of the legion whom Christ cast out of the man had insisted upon entering the swine. The unclean spirit which departs from the man in the parable of Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, that unclean spirit found no rest and returned to the home or the body which he had left. The spirits which Don describes and warns us to test are embodied spirits where John tells us in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the society. Those false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing. Those false prophets are evil spirits. They are the descendants of those original beings who rebelled against God. They are genetically evil people, and they are wicked spirits in those bodies. As the Enoch literature tells us, that evil spirits rebel from bat. I'm sorry, evil spirits result from bastards. That it's the that the the source, the origination of evil spirits are from the people of mixed race. There's nowhere in Scripture where a disembodied evil spirit can communicate with the world. They only communicate with the world while they are embodied. Here in Luke chapter 4, we have no reason to believe that this is some spiritual Satan. This is, I would like to, I would think of this individual who tempted Christ in Luke chapter 4 as a proto-Rothschild or a proto-Rockefeller. He was one of the Canaanite or Edomite leaders in the Middle East or, or rulers in the Middle East or a wealthy merchant in the Middle East at that time. He is a walking devil, not a wicked spirit. There's nothing in the text that leads me to believe that this is a wicked spirit who magically appeared and tempted Christ. This was an individual whom Christ had interaction with at the beginning of his ministry. And as John says, or I'm sorry, as Luke says, this individual, this false accuser, this devil, withdrew from him until a convenient time. And we see what wicked spirits interacted and persecuted Christ later on in the scripture. And they are all people. They're wicked people. 
They're the children of Esau and Canaan. Then Yahshua, by the power of the Spirit, returned into Galilee, and a report went out throughout the whole surrounding region concerning him. And he taught in their assembly halls, being extolled by all. The Codex Sinaiticus, once the word rendered surrounding, it's really immaterial, but it's just a, an exhibition of some of the differences in the manuscripts. The word sunagoge, Strong's number 4864, is translated throughout the Christogenia New Testament as assembly hall. That's what it literally is. It's not merely transliterated as synagogue, a Greek word that the Jews have adopted to their own purposes. The word is an entirely Greek word. Synagogue, synagoge, is a compound word. It's used by classical writers such as Plato and Polybius. It appears often in the Septuagint. It means with the assembly ground. It means to refer to the assembly halls of the Judeans. Now, this enti- now concerning this entire account, which we have seen at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, and which is also told in Matthew chapter 4, there are certainly some aspects of Scripture, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, that can only be explained with an acceptance of the idea of the supernatural power of God, and that the supernatural power of God, and that his spirit certainly does have efficacy in the physical world. Neither should we deny the existence of demon spirits, and that is attested to, attested to in the New Testament as well as in the apocryphal literature. However, as the Enoch literature explains, evil spirits proceed. Evil spirits come from bastards. It is not the other way around. The bastards exist first, and they are the sources of the evil demons. However, there is nothing at all here that suggests that this evil entity which tempts Christ is a mere spiritual entity. It is just as well an evil person, a devil, as the King James Version translates the word, in the same manner by which Judas Iscariot was a devil. And it's the same word which is used to describe Judas Iscariot. We see the word devil here, and Christ said, referring to Judas Iscariot at John 6.70, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Judas was a devil. His spirit was evil. He was a child of Esau and Canaan. He was an embodied evil spirit. We have the same word here in Luke chapter 4 describing this entity which had tempted Christ. He's a devil. He's just like Judas. He's just another Edomite. Judas Iscariot was a devil, ostensibly because he had descended from those original devils 
the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. For that same reason, Herod the Edomite was also described as the red dragon standing in front of the Christ child in order to destroy it. Each of these individuals are a part of that collective Satan which sprung from the original corruption of God's creation. Because their genes are corrupt, they are genetically evil, and they always will be. While there are many instances in Scripture where an angel of God appeared to men, there is not one instance in Scripture where demon spirits communicate with men unless they first inhabit a living being. They can affect men by inhabiting men. They can communicate with men by inhabiting other men. All throughout Scripture, demon spirits vexed and inhabited men. And in that manner did those demon spirits interact with the world. They never interacted with the world as demon spirits in Scripture. Verse 16. Then he went into Nazareth, where he was raised, and entered, according to custom with him, on the day of the Sabbath, into the assembly hall, and stood up to read. The Codex Alexandrinus has Nazareth. The Codex Bazai, Nazareth. The Codex Washingtonensis, Nazareth. The Codexes Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Nazareth. That's just another example of the differences among the manuscripts. Christ, standing up to read in the assembly hall, must have been recognized by the elders of the place because they let him read. Every assembly hall had a leader and an organized structure, as is evident throughout the book of Acts, and Christ would most likely have been recognized as someone who was qualified to do such reading by those men who were charged with running this assembly hall. You can't just get up to read as a stranger in, in, in an assembly hall, just like you can't just get up to read in your local Baptist church unless you're introduced first and the people that run that church are familiar with you. This also helps to dispel the notion that Christ spent any significant amount of time away from Nazareth, which Luke also says is where he was raised. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed over to him, and unrolling the scroll he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and a restoration of sight to the blind, to send off the broken with release, to proclaim a year acceptable by Yahweh. Here we have a bold proclamation by Christ. He's actually proclaiming that he is indeed the Messiah. Since the prophecy of Isaiah, which he quotes here, concerns the promises of deliverance which Yahweh God made to Israel that he would be their savior and deliver them from the captivity which they had suffered. The Greek sentences of Christ's quotations in this reading 
are almost exactly identical to the Greek of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, from the Septuagint, which we now have, but with one small exception, the words rendered, to send off the broken with release, which the King James Version translates here in Luke as to set at liberty them that are bruised. That is part of Isaiah 58.6, which is the only place I find that exact Greek quote comparing the New Testament to the Septuagint. In Isaiah, the King James renders the Hebrew to let the oppressed go free. But the Greek words of the Septuagint are identical to the phrase that appears here in the Greek of Luke 4.18. It may be evident that Christ included this short statement from Isaiah 58 in order to call our attention to one thing, a need for repentance. Isaiah chapter 61 talks about the meek, the brokenhearted, and the mourning, and it promises their restoration. But that chapter alone does not tell us why they are meek, brokenhearted, and mourning. Rather, we must read the chapters leading up to Isaiah chapter 61 in order to understand that. So Christ, I am persuaded, gives us a quote from Isaiah chapter 61, but then includes a short statement from Isaiah chapter 58 in his discourse so that we may read back and see the context in which this message which he gives here is delivered. From Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people, meaning Israel, their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me, the ordinances of justice, and they take delight in approaching to God. He's, he is making an example of how his people should act. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? These are rhetorical questions, and the answer is... Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all of your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the wickedness of the fist. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Now he's asking another question. The text which leads to this question has shown that the children of Israel were fasting hypocritically. They were fasting in order to 
look pious on the outside, yet they were oppressing their brethren. So he asks, is not this the fast that I have chosen? And he goes on to explain what he would rather have them do. And he says, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. It is the phrase here, to let the oppressed go free, as it appears in the Greek of the Septuagint, which Christ included in the statement of Luke chapter 4, when he quoted Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And I quote from Isaiah 58, 7, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? In other words, don't hide from your kin. Take care of them. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of Yahweh shall be thy rearwood. Here we see in Isaiah chapter 58 that the children of Israel were portrayed as fasting, but their fasts were hypocritical, and they were done for their own self-righteousness. The fast which is truly acceptable to Yahweh is that we do without or be satisfied with less so that our brethren can be free of our oppression and that we share our bounty with them. Doing this, we see the subsequent promise in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 9 and 10. Then shalt thou call, and Yahweh shall answer, and thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am, if thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke. In other words, don't depress your brother. The putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. Isaiah chapter 59 is a promise that Yahweh our God shall avenge us of our enemies if indeed we repent and we turn to him. (coughs) Excuse me. The first verses of Isaiah 59 proclaim, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The entire last 25 chapters of Isaiah are written to the children of Israel who were in the Assyrian deportations. The final dispersion of true Israel, which ended by 676 B.C. Isaiah chapter 59 ends with the promise that Yahweh's covenant and Yahweh's spirit shall always be with the seed, the offspring of those children of Israel. And I'll read verse 21. 
As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh. My spirit is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart from out of my mouth, from out of thy mouth, nor from out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and forever. Isaiah chapter 60 is a promise of the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh their God. This happened in Christ. Verse 16 is highly misunderstood. And it reads in the King James Version, and I quote, Thou shalt also suck the milk of the nations, or Gentiles in the King James, and shalt suck the breast of kings, and thou shalt know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The promise within this verse is intended for the descendants of dispersed Israel that Isaiah is talking to. It's intended mostly for the Germanic peoples who would eventually come to dominate modern society as the leading nations of Christendom. This promise is aimed at them. The nations spoken of here are the nations of the old white world, the nations of Genesis 10. With this context of the repentance of Israel, and the subsequent promises of the restoration of Israel understood, here is Isaiah chapter 61, from which Christ quotes the first two verses in reference to himself. The spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek, Christ claiming himself to be the Messiah. He has sent me to heal up the bond to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the captives of the deportations of Israel, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, which we await, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the, joy of, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, the race of Adam in the garden of God, that he might be glorified, and they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, and the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. This is a pro prophecy concerning Israel, and it's absolutely true. And the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. We see among us today this very thing, and that proves our identity as Israel, even though we don't like the squat monsters in our fields. But you shall be named the priests of Yahweh. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast yourselves. For your fame you shall have double, and for your, for your shame, I'm sorry, you shall have double. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion, 
Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, Yahweh, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth, and I will make them an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, and they are the seed which Yahweh has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh my soul. My soul shall be joyful in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Ephesians chapter 6. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, Israel is the bride of God. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so Yahweh God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Here the promises to Israel in Isaiah chapter 61 are very much like what is seen in Revelation chapter 18. In verse 6, for instance, that once Babylon is fallen, the children of Israel coming out from the beast system are told to reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she is filled, fill double to her. Here in Isaiah chapters 58 to 61, which Christ is quoting in reference to himself, the children of Israel are encouraged to repent. And it is evident that they, in their captivity, they are the captivity. They are the poor. They are the captives. They are the blind. They are the broken whom Christ is referring to. None of this message can ever be applied to anyone except those children of Israel taken into the captivity in ancient times. These are the lost sheep, and here Christ declares himself to be their Messiah. All of this can only apply to the children of Israel. Yahshua Christ choosing Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 to read before this assembly hall. Once we see the context of Isaiah chapter 61, 1 and 2, this statement has every bit as much impact as that statement recorded by Matthew where Christ says, I have come but unto, or only for, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is yet another exclusivist purpose of the ministry of Christ recorded by Luke, and it's not recorded in the other Gospels. Luke 4.20, and rolling the scroll, he returned it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the assembly hall were gazing earnestly at him. The people listening were fully aware of the meaning of his declaration 
and they were amazed at his assertions, which he reinforces after his reading the scroll in the subsequent verses where he speaks to them, and I quote verse 421 of Luke, then he began to speak to them that today this writing is filled in your ears. Verse 22, and all gave witness to him and wondered at the words of favor which came forth from his mouth. And they said, is he not a son of Joseph? And he said to them, surely you shall speak to me this parable. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard happened in Capernaum, do also here in your fatherland. By fatherland, here he is referring to Nazareth the sense of the word being much narrower than how it is usually used today. It refers to the small area in Galilee. Then he said, Verily I say to you that not one prophet is acceptable in his fatherland. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, after the trial in the desert, we see what is generally perceived and I would say wrongly perceived, as the selection of the first four apostles and a brief account of the beginning of Christ's ministry in Galilee, where this specific event, which we have just witnessed in Luke, is not recorded. Luke has some details that the other apostles did not have, and the opposite is also true. One thing which is important to note when reading the balance of this chapter is that here in Luke, Yahshua is perceived as having already known Simon Peter, and we will see that in Luke 4.38. And therefore, the apostles were actually selected before the statements of Christ at the shores of Galilee, where he tells some of them that he would make them fishers of men. So we will follow that as we proceed through the story. The selection of the apostles, as it is described in the Gospel of John, reflects a very different and more complex perspective on the matter, which the simple and brief accounts in the three synoptic Gospels do not describe. Yet the various Gospels do not necessarily contradict one another, but rather, indeed, they complement one another. There was another and later event where the idea is repeated here, where it says, Verily I say to you that not one prophet is acceptable in his fatherland. Where, where that idea is repeated and recorded in Matthew chapter 13. And I read from verse 53. And it came to pass, when Yahshua had finished these parables, he removed from there, and having come into his fatherland, he taught them in their assembly hall. So for them to be astonished, even to say, from where is this man, in this man is this wisdom and abilities? Is this not the son of a craftsman? Is not his mother called Mariam and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph, and Simon, and Judah, and are not his sisters all here with us. So from where in this man are all these things? 
and they were offended by him. But Yahshua said to him, A prophet is not dishonored except in his own fatherland and household. And he did not do many works of power there on account of their disbelief. I have to take an aside here. Adolf Hitler must have read these words of Christ, and having observed the truth which they bear in his own everyday intercourse, he made the following assessment, and I'm going to quote from volume 1, chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, page 166 of the Murphy translation, where he says, just as in our daily life, the so-called man of genius needs a particular occasion and sometimes indeed a special stimulus to bring his genius to light. So too, in the life of the peoples, the race that has genius in it needs the occasion and stimulus to bring that genius to expression. In the monotony and routine of everyday life, even persons of significance seem just like the others and do not rise beyond the average level of their fellow men. But as soon as such men find themselves in a special situation which disconcerts and unbalances the others, the humble person of apparently common qualities reveals traits of genius, often to the amazement of those who have hitherto known him in the small things of everyday life. That is the reason why a prophet only seldom counts for something in his own country. Adolf Hitler's quotation there reflects exactly what is going on in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, and here in Luke chapter 4, in the verses we have just discussed, I had to mention it for that reason and also to show Adolf Hitler's philosophically Christian foundation. Luke 4, verse 25. And in truth, I say to you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven had been shut for three years and six months as great a famine came upon all the land, and to not one of them had Elijah been sent, except to Sarepta of Sidonia, to a widow woman. And there were many lepers in Israel, with Elisei the prophet, yet not one of them had been cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. And they in the assembly hall had all become filled with anger, hearing these things. The events, concerning the widow of Zarephath, or here in the Greek, Sarepta, are recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17. It is argued by universalists that this woman must have been an alien, and therefore the grace of God may be extended to aliens. However, that is an assumption on the part of the universalists, and it is not necessarily so. Zarephath may have been of Sidon, as it is commonly called, yet the children of Israel clearly inhabited all of the land of Sidon, which fell by lot to the tribe of Asher in Joshua chapter 19, 
verses 24 through 31. Even though the tribe of Asher did not actually expel all of the Canaanites from the land, they did enslave them. Joab, in his census of Israel, went as far as Sudan in order to count the men of Israel, 2 Samuel 24, 6. The woman in question seemed like a pious woman who recognized Elijah as a man of God, 1 Kings 17, 18. And there is no proof that she was an actual alien. The Israelites had already been estranged from Judah and from the house of Yahweh, their God, at Jerusalem since the days of the divided kingdom when Jeroboam instituted the cult of the golden calves, which we see in 1 Kings chapter 12. The story of Naaman the Syrian is told in 2 Kings chapter 5. The Syrians, or Aramaeans, were cousins to the Hebrews. They were the descendants of Aram, the son of Shem, for which see Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. What matters in this illustration which Christ makes is not whether the widow of Sidon, who was most likely an Israelitess, there's much more evidence that she was an Israelitess than if she was an alien. It's just that Israel had already been, ex- had been alienated from Judah. What matters in this illustration is not whether this widow of Sidon or not whether Naaman the Syrian, who was certainly a Shemite, were biblically eligible to receive the grace of the God. Rather, what matters here is that in the judgment of the people of Judea, they were perceived as being ineligible. And therefore, the people hated Christ for the illustration which he made. The people of Judea had become religious exclusivists. They rejected all those who did not practice Judaism, no matter their race. We see the woman at the well in Samaria who attested to Christ that Jacob was her father, that he dug that well. He never refuted that. Yet she asked what, the, what a man of Judah should do with a Samarian, because the Judahites of the time had rejected all the Samarians, regardless of their actual race. And that's fully evident in Scripture and in Josephus. Yet, the people of Judea had accepted the Edomites who converted to Judaism. They were not any longer racial exclusivists or inclusivists. Rather, they excluded and included people based on religious grounds alone. Verse 29, And rising up, they cast him out of the city, and brought him into a brow of the mountain, 
upon which their city was built, so as to throw him down. Then he departed, passing through the midst of them. Many people see a supernatural event in the departure of Christ from the people here. Rather, it may just as well illustrate the hand of God in the events of man, that no man could actually lay a hand upon Christ until the time appointed by God, even though many men had wanted to. Therefore, he was able to simply walk away from them. It is at this point in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5, in verse 12, and just before Joshua leaves for Capernaum, that we are told of the arrest of John the Baptist, where Matthew 5.12 reads, And having heard that John had been handed over, he, meaning Christ, withdrew into Galilee. Luke 4.31 Then he descended into Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished by his teaching, because his discourse was with authority. <clears throat> Capernaum was a town on the Sea of Kinnereth, or the Sea of Galilee. The name means village of comfort. Many people interpret the name to mean village of Nahum, referring to Nahum the prophet. However, of course, the word Nahum also means comfort, as well as being the name of the prophet. In his book of prophecy, Nahum calls himself the Elkoshite. However, the exact location of the village of Elkosh is unknown. In verse 31, after the word Galilee, the Codex Bazai inserts a phrase which would read, by the sea in the districts of Zebulon and Naphtali. Luke 4.33, and in the assembly hall was a man having a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a great voice, hey, what is there with us and with you, Yahshua the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Yahweh. <clears throat> this verse is telling. While in the desert, the false accuser, or the devil, wanted Christ to prove who he was through a demonstration. Here in this place, a demon spirit knows who Christ is without questioning. There is not one place in Scripture where it is demonstrable that demon spirits have any efficacy or can communicate with men in the physical world unless they are embodied in physical bodies, whether those bodies are their own or those of others. Luke 4.35 Then Yahshua chastised him, saying, Be silent and come out from him. And the demon, throwing him down, meaning the man whom was possessed, throwing him down between them, came out from him, not hurting him any. And there came amazement upon all, and they spoke together to one another, saying, What an account this is, for that with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they depart. 
And the report went out concerning him into every place in the surrounding area. Verse 38. Then rising up from the assembly hall, he entered into the house of Simon. And the mother-in-law of Simon was stricken with a terrible fever, and they inquired of him concerning her. And standing over her, he censured the fever, and it left her. Then immediately, having risen, she served them. Simon here is, of course, Simon Peter. In the Gospel of Matthew, the statement of Christ to the apostles that he would make them fishers of men and the famous Sermon on the Mount both occurred before Christ was healed. I'm sorry, before Christ had healed the mother of Peter, which he describes in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where it says, Then Yahshua coming into the house of Petrus saw his mother-in-law stricken and sick with fever, and he grasped her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served him. While Mark does not record the Sermon on the Mount, the order of the other events in his gospel corroborates Matthew's account of the order of the events. Here it is evident that Peter has a wife, that Paul also alludes to Peter's having been married at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 5 is evident where he wrote, have we not power to lead about, Paul speaking of himself and Barnabas, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is the Hebrew equivalent of the word for stone, which gives us the name Peter. Here it is also evident whether either Matthew's placement or Luke's placement of this event within the timeline of the gospel is correct, is immaterial. Luke accepted that Yahshua Christ knew Simon Peter and his associates before his admonition to them at the shores of Lake Gennesaret or the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, that he would make them fishers of men, which is recorded in Luke chapter 5. The encounter at the lake is generally thought by many Christians to be when Christ first met the apostles. However, it was not. Rather, it was only one of his early discussions with them. And their actual selection is described by John in his gospel. But it is not described in any of the synoptic gospels. When Christ encountered Andrew and Peter fishing at Lake Gennesaret, he already knew them. And that will be discussed further next week in John, and I'm sorry, when Luke chapter 5 is discussed. Luke 4, verse 40. Then the sun setting, all, as many as they had who were sick with various diseases, they brought to him, and he healed each one of them, laying the hands upon them. 
from Psalm 103, and I quote from verse 1, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all thine iniquities? Who heals all thy diseases? Who redeems thy life from destruction? Who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who, satisfy, who satisfies thy mouth with good things? so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Yahweh executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed, keeping with the theme of Luke chapter 4. Luke 4.41, And there also came out demons from many, crying aloud and saying that you are the son of Yahweh. And censuring them, he did not permit them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. Again, these demon spirits who were possessing men knew him to be the Christ. But in contrast, the accuser in the desert, the devil in shoe leather, did not know him to be the Christ, but only said, If thou be the Son of God, as the King James Version has it. Verse 42. Then day coming, Christ had evidently been healing people all night, departing, he went into a desert place, and the crowd sought him, and having come unto him, they, they detained him, for which not to go away from them. But he said to them that it is necessary for me to deliver the good message of the kingdom of Yahweh in other cities also, because for this have I been sent. And he was proclaiming in the assembly halls of Judea. It was necessary for Christ to deliver the good message of the kingdom of Yahweh. In another place, he told the people of Judea, that the kingdom of Yahweh does not come along with observation, nor shall I say, behold, it is here, or it is there. For behold, the kingdom of Yahweh is among you, as the Christian New Testament translates the statement. The people of God are here. The people of God have always been here. Any other people here, are not the people of God. The people of God were placed here when Yahweh created the Adamic man, the Adamic race, beginning with Genesis 2-7. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were already here. When we finally heed the call to come out from the midst of them and be separated, and that means all of them, all of them who are not Adam, all of them who were not born from above, then the kingdom of God shall begin to materialize right before our very eyes. I pray that tonight my presentation on Luke chapter 4 will cause at least some of the dualists to reevaluate the scripture, to reevaluate their position, because there is no Satan in heaven. Satan is all around us 
in the forms of people who are not born of heaven, but who are born of the world. These non-Adamic races of men who are all destined for the lake of fire. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will see you tomorrow night when I sit with Severus and talk about white nationalism and its common ground in Christian identity. Good night.